0: Well, good morning, Anthem. Uh, John, as we continue in his gospel, has been building uh, to this moment. Uh, this is a culminating sign in John's gospel. Uh, one of the things we've come back to again and again is this statement near the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And and in this statement, we've called John's thesis statement, it explains why John highlights the specific signs, the specific healings, the things that Jesus does. And this is what John says. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the apostles or disciples, which are not written in this book. So what John says is, "I've, I've actually, there are many things, hundreds, perhaps thousands of things Jesus did that I didn't include in this book my gospel. So why did he include the ones that he did? He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's saying, "I've, I've specifically recounted the specific signs that would allow you to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and specifically the life that is available to you in Jesus and, and John's gospel is structured where the first half up through chapter 13, there are seven of these signs. We have seen six of them. And at each of these, there's almost like a formula. You can see this at the end of chapter two with the wedding of Cana. And, and you have this formula, which is they, they, Jesus performs a sign. He performs a miracle. And when he performs it, it says that then they saw his glory in that sign, that miracle, the life, the power, the love grace, something of Jesus and of God's glory. And seeing his glory, it says, then they believe. That then they see as human beings, they see the problem that we have as humans in a fallen world. We see the solution in Jesus. We see the life that conquers death in Jesus Christ. And what happens here is it builds to this moment here when when John says, there is a sign that I'm going to recount that is the culmination of the work of Christ. And that culmination is the work of Jesus conquering death, defeating the final enemy. See, one of the reasons why John goes into this, we, we just had at the end of chapter 10, all of a sudden the, the narrative goes to where they, they go off to the, the desert or over by the Jordan and people are being baptized. And baptism is this picture of people going into death and then rising again to newness of life. And, and so now the question becomes, what does it look like to experience that resurrection life, to have that kind of of, of Of experience, of having, of living in Christ. Because what Christianity says is that death does not have the final say. Christianity claims most fundamentally that death does not have the final say in our lives. However, often we live our lives even as christians even as those who follow jesus even as those who maybe have been baptized and had a mountain high experience or whatnot we live our lives saying yes i know i've been baptized in christ i've died i've I've been given forgiveness for my sins and now i have this resurrection reality but often though death has a very very big say in our lives uh there there was a some of you may be familiar with it 1972 there was a work by a i guess you call him an anthropologist Ernest Becker. Uh, it was called The Denial of Death. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a well-known work. And, and in it, he claimed in his, his practice of uh, when he would, would work with individuals in his clinical practice, what he, he noticed, he developed this theory. And, and I remember in the, in the midst of this work, there's this image that has always stuck with me because he said is every, everyone thinks that they're not living with this fear of death. Everyone thinks that they're living kind of free of this reality as if it's kind of buried. It's something long off in the future. But what he found was that actually his thesis, his his theory was that death is actually the core thing that often drives human life and the decisions that we make and the way we live. And I remember he gave this imagery of it. He said that death operates in our life like when you're standing on a subway platform and there's this low rumbling under the surface of the train approaching. And remember that picture that there's, are we live our lives, but underneath the surface of our lives, there's this low rumbling, this, this awareness, that there's this reality that is coming. And it permeates everything we do and the way we live. The fear of death Leads to this sense of powerlessness, even to a a sense of of insignificance, of just this finiteness of of our lives and who we are and our vulnerability. And what happens is that often, as a result, drives our souls in ways that we're unaware. Yet Jesus, in this passage here, he's, he's in this sign. What he's doing here is he's saying, I've come to set you free from that fear of death. I've come to set you free so you would have life in me, so your life would not be driven by this overwhelming reality that one day death will arrive. And so what Jesus is first going to do, what we're going to look at, is first we're going to look at the rumbling in our souls. What is this rumbling that we see? What's that rumbling in our souls and what does it look like? Second, the rumbling in our lives caused by death. And then third, the rumbling at the tomb. And Jesus' response. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for this truth. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see where our lives are being driven, overwhelmed by that low rumbling of death. Lord, the only thing that can drown out that rumbling is a voice of a shepherd calling us out of the tomb. And so, Lord, would, you, would we hear Jesus' voice clearly this morning? Would we we see the reality that we have in Christ? Lord, would it produce joy in us? Would it produce hope in us? Would it produce perseverance in us? Would it produce freedom in us? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout this passage, there's, there's one word that actually occurs repeatedly. It comes up several times, and that word is the word love. It's going to come up immediately when we get into this passage, verse 3, verse 5, then in verse 36. At the end, it kind of frames the whole thing, and there's other associated uh, terms. Like uh, Jesus is going to say, Lazarus is my friend. He's our friend, referring to the disciples. There's this, this kind of this, this sentiment throughout that John's framing how he tells this story and recounts the events here where he's, he's focusing in on the love of Christ. And so when we get in the verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of, the village of Mary and her sis, sister Martha. And so it says not just any man, but, but it goes on to say this is a man specifically that Jesus loves, that he's affectionate of, that he cares about, that he knows. So in verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, this is something John will often do. He'll introduce someone, and he'll, he'll kind of foreshadow something they're going to do. We're going to see how Mary wipes Jesus' feet next week. Uh, But what he does here, because Mary in the New Testament, there are actually three different Marys. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have Mary Magdalene. We have Mary, the the sister of Lazarus. There's several different Marys. So it's clarifying which Mary are we talking about here. And And then he says, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So their brother is dying. He's ill. They can tell this is a serious illness. He's on his deathbed. They send to Jesus and they say, Jesus, will you come? Will you come to our brother? And they say, he's the one that you love the one that you love, that you care about. He's ill. Now, why is John emphasizing this? Why is he specifically highlighting this detail of the love that Jesus has for Lazarus? Well, what John's doing is he's setting up a tension here. He's setting up a tension. So watch what happens. Verse 4, but When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus says this illness will, it's not going to lead to death, ultimate death. In fact, here we're going, okay, it's not going to lead to death. What does he mean by death? Does he mean now? Does he mean like ultimate death, like forever, eternally death? What, What does Jesus mean here? But he says, God, whatever happens here, God's going to glorify himself. In other words, Jesus is connecting to that theme of John's gospel of saying, listen, I've come and I'm going to do things. And what I'm about to do when you see me do it, it's going to speak into something that needs deep healing in your life and reveal my glory. The deep problems of being a human being and the sin sin of this world and death, you're going to see clearly how I'm the solution and how I brought healing. So how will he do it? Verse 5, continuing, now Jesus loved Martha, love again, he loves them, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So John emphasizes Jesus' love again. Now, what, why is John emphasizing Jesus' love? Did you catch why he's emphasizing it? Because there's a tension here that's building. Did you catch it? He, they say they, he loves them. So, so when he heard, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, Jesus, will you come? Will you help our brother? He's dying. He's on his deathbed. When Jesus hears that, it says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then it says, then after this, after he stuck around for two years, or two, two years, two days after it might as well been two years, right? Because in other words, what's saying, once he allowed the, the illness to overcome Lazarus, once he succumbed to the illness, and once he died, then Jesus heads there. John's saying, in the midst of it, this is raising this tension here. This tension that we feel in our lives, Jesus, you know there's death, you know there's illness, you know there's natural disasters, God, you know these things are here. Why do you delay? Where are you? Do you love us? Do you care? See, what's happening is he's developing a tension that is very real to us. It's creating in the situation where we go, that's a picture of what it's like being a human being in a fallen world. When we're faced with death, we have a God who says, I want to free you, I want to heal you, I want to raise you from the grave. But what happens in the in-between when we're facing death? It's this tension that we feel. You you can put this tension in a question. The question is this, if God loves us, why does death persist? Do you feel that tension? If God loves us, why would we have sickness? Why would we have death? Why would we have war? Why would we have famine? Why would we have natural disaster? But, but then on the other side, you say, but if, if God does love us and I accept that and I pursue that reality, I take hold of that reality, but then these things do persist, then another question comes up, wait, then if God loves us, but these things are here, does that mean God is powerless? And so for all the sentiment and the chocolates and the flowers that God sends us, He's ultimately impotent in the face of our greatest enemy. Now, this is why I think the other side of the tension John brings in with Jesus' interactions with the disciples. So look at verse 8. Then the disciples, so then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. So they've just been in Judea, and and they know that there, Jesus has left there because this is where they wanted to stone him, where they wanted to arrest him, where they wanted to probably kill him. So the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you were going there again? Like, you want to go back there? Because this is where Lazarus is, right? In Bethany, near Jerusalem, near the center of power. And and, and he's going, if you go there, that's where where they all are. You're going to get killed. You're going to get stoned. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, why does he say this? What is Jesus saying there? It's a little bit cryptic, right? Sometimes Jesus says these cryptic things. But, and what Jesus does is he's, he's beginning to develop a reality that he's going to display for them. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, normally when you, when you have to travel, what you see is the death and the reality in the world. You see the fact that the sun is setting on this world. You are experiencing the darkness of this world. And while there's still the sun, you can walk in the darkness. But then what he says is, but if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of life. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, what he's saying there is there's light in the midst of the darkness. You need the light. And he says, so if you think that we're just going to head off into the darkness in this reality and face death without the light, then, yeah, why would we go? But what Jesus is saying here is what has he just said the chapter before or two chapters before? I am the light of life. And so what Jesus says is, but you have me. And I came into this world to conquer death and darkness And you're going with me. And so what Jesus is saying is, I am heading to Lazarus. I'm heading into the darkness. I'm heading right into the face of death because that's the whole reason I came. Now, after saying these things in verse 11, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So what's he saying? He's saying, I'm going into the darkness. He's using this imagery of Lazarus. He's dead. Okay, we're going to see in a second. And he's describing him as asleep because he's saying he's, he's in the darkness. And I'm going into the darkness, and I'm going to turn on the light. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Right? So they just hear sleep, right? And they're like, well, I mean, he just needs some bed rest, Jesus. You know, like, give him some time, right? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, I love that, <laughs> He just tells them, listen, guys, Lazarus has died. And they're like, oh, what? Right? Like they, they haven't understood it, right? And for your sake, I am glad that I was there, not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jesus says, I, Lazarus, is in the darkness. I'm going to turn on the light because I can. Because I have the power. Because even though in this world it seems like death has the final say, death is irreversible, death is the ultimate power, it is. But what I'm telling you is I've come to bring my power and conquer it. the disciples, of course, at first don't get it because there is something in them that doesn't really believe Jesus if we follow you. And Jesus, you're stoned. Or Jesus, in the face of Lazarus' death, if he's dead, why would we go to him? Because at this point, they don't see that Jesus ultimately has power over death, right? That's hard to believe. We get it. If you're in the shoes of the disciples, you'd be in the exact same place. This is why it seems the summary statement here in 16 by Thomas, this is the one who later in John's gospel is called Thomas, the the doubting Thomas, if you're familiar with that story at the end of the gospel. But it says, so Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. It seems they're saying, fine, all right, where else can we go but to follow you? We will follow you. We know you love us. We love you. We will go where you go. But they think ultimately the final reality for them, they follow Jesus, is death. Death. These two thing at sides of the tension we feel in the face of death. Do you really love us, God, in the midst of this reality? Do you care? And on the other end, God, are you really powerful enough to overcome this thing? There' a tension that exists in our souls that goes back and forth that we see here as they face the reality of death. And what death all, often does when death hits us in our lives, when somebody we love dies, when we, we're facing death, when it just becomes more palpable, when, when it becomes more acute, the, the reality of what we really believe in our souls about those two things rises up. And, and I've seen this again and again. So I remember the first two funerals I ever did. And I actually was reminded of this because I was able to, um, I actually talked with the mother I'm about to tell you about. About a week and a half ago, I was able to touch base with her, and it was, it was wonderful to, to hear where she's at now. But the first two funerals I ever did as a pastor, the first one, it was, it was for the same family, those two funerals. And a grown son of a couple in our church, their son, a tragic death. And I remember after that, the processing was in the midst of it how could, if God loved him, how could he get to this place? How could this have happened? Realizing so many times when I've faced death or people in my life have died, I've wrestled with the same question. And then what happened was about nine, ten months later, another one of their grown sons died. Another tragic death. Both of them out of the blue. And then at that point, it was, it was wrestling with, okay, I, I can rest secure in the love of God. And then now at this point, it's going, God, how could you let this happen? Can you do nothing about this? Could you not overcome the addictions and the things in his life? Could you not have saved him? Both those sons were professing followers of Jesus, and, and they had that hope. But in the midst of it, you're going, God, where, where are you? Do you care? Right? Do you feel that? It's a tension that we face. But it's not just a tension. Again, death makes this acute, these realities. And it's not just in response to death, but it also brings up things and how it drives our lives when we're in this place with these two realities. So the second thing, then the rumbling in our lives. Verse 17 uh, alludes to a really interesting cultural belief in their day. It says, now, when Jesus came, so he comes to Bethany, he comes to, he's going to where Lazarus has died. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, it's interesting, four days. Uh, one of the, why well, I say it's an interesting cultural uh, belief, they believed at that point um, that for three days, the spirit would hover over the body. And then after the three days, the spirit, once decay, has set in then the spirit would see the decay, and the body now that the spirit belongs in is decaying, and it says, all right, it's time, and the spirit departs. So culturally for them, when they arrive on the fourth day, it is death is irreversible. The delay has been for the decay, and they think death is irreversible. This is why everyone's coming to them at this point. The morning is setting in, verses 18, 19. Bethel was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary, so they're probably actually a prominent family. Because everyone's coming to them to console them concerning their brother. And you can imagine this is like a, a viewing or a wake in a, when somebody has died. And everyone now thinks this is final. Okay, he is dead. And so they're, they're coming around and they're mourning with them. And you can imagine they're sharing stories and, and they're reminiscing. And they're also beginning to ask how he's in the height of his life. He was so healthy. How could this happen? And, and they're going and having these conversations. You can imagine them asking the question, well, I mean, if, if God, I thought Jesus loved this guy. Where, where, where's Jesus this whole time? Isn't Jesus the one who does the miracle? Don't you know the Jesus guy that we've heard about? And he does the miracles and he, he heals people and whatnot. And now, this friend, friend who dies and he's not here, where is he? In fact, it seems it delayed. He would have gotten news at least three days ago. So. It says, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seen in the house. So we have something here in Martha. She's in the midst of these discussions. And so because they're in these discussions and this reality is kind of percolating amongst them, she hears Jesus is now coming and she goes out to meet Jesus. Now, Mary obviously is in a different place, who we'll see in a second. Mary says, I just, I can't. Mary or Martha goes out to meet Jesus. Now, what's interesting is when Martha comes to him, he comes, she comes clearly with some kind of assumption. Because what happens here, there's something happening where Mary and her are back with these people. And I think this question is coming up because when they both get to Jesus, they say the same thing. You'll see this here, and then you'll see it in verse 32. Mary and Martha say the exact same thing to Jesus. It's like they're opening Bali. It's what's been in their minds and what they've been discussing, and they come to Jesus. And Martha said to her in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? Now, what's interesting though with Martha, as you can imagine, they've been beginning to process this. And so Martha follows up the statement with another statement then. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, when she says this, it reveals what she's processing, but Jesus is going to use that statement to draw something out of Martha. Verse 22, Jesus' response, or verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now notice the ambiguity of that statement. Her brother has just died and he says he will rise again. But Jesus doesn't say when will he rise again? How will he rise, but when will he rise again? He will, but when? And what this does is it draws out something key in Martha's when Martha responds. It reveals what's in her. So verse 24 then says Martha said to him, "I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day." Aha. See what Mar- what Martha believes is that one day, she believes that God can raise the dead. She believes on the side of the equation of power. Jesus, where were you? I'm wondering. Do you even care about my brother? I know. I knew that you loved him, but now you delayed. I believe you have the power. I believe you can raise him from the dead. One day. It's cold. It's theoretical. It's stoic. It's distant. One day. but Do you care about him now? This is where Jesus then says his famous statement that you've probably heard in verse 25. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and dies in me shall never die. But do you believe this? When you read that, it sounds, it's like, wow, that's a great statement. What is Jesus saying there? What's interesting there is Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then what Jesus does in the next two lines is he defines resurrection and he defines life. Because notice he says, I'm the resurrection. Then whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall yet live. Yes, Martha, you're right. He shall let or yet live. You have your theology right. You have your beliefs right. You have your system right. And you believe correctly and you assent to it. But he also, I am the life. Anyone or everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Also, those who believe in me in one sense will never actually perish. In other words, there's a resurrection, which is in the future. It's the ultimate reality of being raised from the dead. But Jesus is saying, I've came, come to give you life now, that that resurrection reality of the future would be a reality now. That you would know my presence, you would know my life, you would know in that my love and my care. Notice Jesus anchors it in him. He says, I am where it's found. I am this reality. So when he asks her, do you believe? What he's asking her is when she responds, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. What she's saying there is she's saying, yes, Jesus, I trust you. I will anchor my faith in you. But she's still not seeing the immediacy of it, as we'll see in a moment. It's still this far-off theoretical belief. She believes in God's power, but it's distant. It's far off. But she doesn't know the life and his personal, that love, that care that he's come for. You know, one of the things with this is I couldn't help but um, when I read the name Martha, uh, it reminds me of my mother. My, my mother's name was Marta, okay? German name. Not many people are named it. Like the sound of music is about the only time you've ever heard it. So Martha always reminds me of her. And and with this, one of the things a few years ago, my my mother, both my parents died when I was only 33. Disconnected from one another. And and I remember, so it brings to mind her death. And Martha here resonates with me so deeply. When, When my mom died, I remember I responded very much in the same way. I'm a pastor, Lord. I know, like one day she'll be resurrected, in in the last day she'll be raised from the dead. But there was this coldness, this distance, and I remember feeling almost a coldness in my soul. Yes, there's this future reality, but do you care? Do you draw near? you just conquer this thing and it's down the road and it's it it, how does that impact now perhaps you can resonate with that jesus saying i'm powerful to overcome death but i also love you and i give you life now and death forces us to face that becker ernst Becker, who I, i referred to in the beginning he 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 claimed he said death makes us face the fact that we are insignificant that in the wide scheme of things perhaps we're just a, a collection of atoms perhaps we're just a spark and in the face of death it feels like it's this cold reality that lands upon us like just eventually that shadow passes over us and it's just we're gone And and so what he claimed was that if we if we believe deep down that no one really in the end loves us, cares for us in the midst of that reality, what will happen? He says, he calls it, he says, we'll be driven to tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. Don't you love that phrase? Tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. This is why he called it the denial of death, the, the name of the book. He he said, what happens is to deny death, we live our lives just getting busy, trying to drown out that low rumbling. And deep down, what it is is trying to drown out that sense of insignificance. What's interesting is actually, if you know other Bible stories about Martha, this matches her profile. She's like always the busybody. She's the one always serving. She's the one who won't slow down. She's the one who can't stop. She has to prove her existence. Drown out that rumbling with activity and productivity. And it may not be just like basic busyness in life. It could be also one of the things Becker said was building a legacy. See, one of the things that's interesting is often in our lives, the reason why we grab hold of good things, or like our career, our raising our children, trying to be famous, maybe that's a quasi-good thing. But we, we long for these things, and they're not necessarily completely bad things, but what happens is, what he says is, often we try to find immortality in those things. That I mean, think about it. Babe Ruth has no legacy except for if baseball exists. Baseball ceases to exist. Babe Ruth, who, who cares who Babe Does anyone know the most famous cricket player of all time? No, because you don't value cricket. There's no legacy, right? <laughs> think about it. Like, who's the greatest mime of all time? Maybe one of you knows, right? But no one really knows what... Who, the, Our legacy is attached to something greater than us, and so what we try to do is attach ourselves to a career or a project or a movement or an ideology or something because, here's the thing, deep down, we're so afraid that we actually are insignificant, and when that rumbling comes, it reminds us that if we don't attach ourselves to something and become significant, there's nothing in us to really love. And what Jesus is saying is death makes you realize in the midst of it, perhaps no one out there cares. Perhaps he's distant. He says, no, I've come to give you life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one you are looking for. I am the one who conquers it, but not just in the future, but now. Find your legacy, find your significance, find your life in me. Now on the other side, we have Mary. Mary. Mary comes to Jesus, and she believes in the love of God, but she lacks that trust in his power. It leads to, instead of a denial of death, more of a distraughtness in the face of death. It continues in verse 28 through 32. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, Martha goes to Mary, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into a village. But was with still in the place where Martha had met him, so he's still outside the town, hasn't come in. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to tomb to weep there. Now, in that day, they would hire mourners. I know that kind of seems weird for our day, but they would have. They really knew how to mourn well, and so they'd be like three weeks. We're just mourning, and people were around crying and and playing dirges and and all this stuff in order to facilitate the mourning, And so all the crowd would follow her. And now, and you can imagine all these people, Mary's there going, does he love my brother? I know he loves my brother, but can he do anything about this? And you can imagine they all follow Mary because it says in verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died But here's the thing. Mary said the same thing, or Martha said the same thing. But when Mary says it, that's all she says. She doesn't say, but, 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 but. I know a truth. I know this thing. Mary's just broken. She's distraught, going, I know. If you had been here, he'd be alive. I know that you love him. You care for him. That's why you're here. But she's falling apart because, here's the thing. One of the best definitions I've ever heard of sadness is that sadness is love seeking its object. Sadness is love seeking its object. Sadness is a healthy, good emotion. It's love looking for its object. But here's the thing for Mary. When she comes to Jesus, she's going, here's where I'm at. Here's the reality of what I know in you. My object is gone forever. The hope I have is extinguished. So what good does it do that you love him? You should be falling apart with me here. Let's just mourn and let's weep. Because he's not coming back. There's a distraughtness that they're not just perplexed by it, they're crushed and despairing. Mary believed, yes, there's life in your name, but what about when that life passes? It seems that she's assuming, Jesus, you're powerless. Death has the final say, death has spoken. That's why Jesus has the response he does. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who I come with are also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, Jesus, what happens here is Jesus begins to look around. Jesus sees the weeping. Jesus sees the destruction. Jesus sees the consequences, the pollution, the pain and anguish of death. In his response, he's deeply moved. That English translation does not capture what the Greek there is saying, outraged. The clearest translation would be outraged. Even more than in 34, and he said, where have you lain him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible So if you want to start with Bible memory, start there with that verse. But what happens here, notice that Jesus is outraged by this reality of death, the enemy, and here the Savior of the world encounters his enemy. And he sees what has happened, and he goes, and it's at the moment that he goes to the tomb. It's at the moment that he comes face to face. And he sees the pain. He sees the reality that we are fallen into. And he weeps. Jesus didn't say death is natural. It's just a normal part of the life cycle, everyone. No, he wept. He's our high priest who's sympathetic. He knows. But then also what's interesting is that this word for weep is different than the weeping that's used in the Greek of those around in the passage, it's different than the weeping of the mourners. Wept here in the Greek is a response to calamity. What's happening here is weeping is a response to something has gone wrong here. It's weeping when you show up on the shores of Florida right now to see the destruction of Hurricane Ian. It's saying something is wrong. It's not just a hopeless weeping. It's a weeping that's a protest. And he's revealing both his love and and declaring this is wrong, and it's resolve, it's a will, he will do something. You know, it's interesting, it says Jesus responded this way because his spirit responded this way. It reminds me of Romans eight twenty six when it says, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. I shared this a few weeks ago at SALT when I taught on that passage, but I remember one of the things that slowly happened over time with my mother's death, where I I knew of the power of God, but I didn't quite feel the love of God, and I remember at one point weeping during her funeral. And I, I, I don't like putting words in the mouth of God, but what I acutely felt in that sense was God's Spirit groaning with me in the midst of it, and just whispering into my ear, I... Feel this with you. I am with you. And it's that sense of firm resolve of that groaning that this is not how it's supposed to be. The son suffers for you. The spirit suffers with you. I will come into this world and I will do something about this. But it's still that loving, intimate, and it's also so you would have life, power, Life and the love of God together. Two responses to death. The tension and the love of God, but the power of God as death persists. And notice, I think we're, why I think we're on the right track here, notice the response is exactly that, how the crowd divides. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Doesn't he have the power? So how does Jesus respond? Lastly, the rumbling at the tomb. One key doctrine of God that we we often don't talk about in the modern church, it's not a sexy doctrine, it's the doctrine of impassibility. And the doctrine of impassibility is God's unchangeableness. Seeing that God isn't overwhelmed by emotions, God isn't overcome by external things in the same way that we are. But yet at the same time, it doesn't mean that God is stoic, that God is without passion. But it He's not manipulated. But he has passion. Why, how do those two come together? God is unchangeable in the sense that when he has passion, when he has a response, it is a response that is right and just. And it is a response that leads to just action. And so what happens here, this is why Jesus, the son of God, when he has this passion, immediately moves towards the enemy. Verse Thirty-eight. Then Jesus deeply moved again, there it is again, outraged again, standing at the tomb again, hearing the tension all around him, wanting to break through, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So immediately, Jesus walks up to the tomb and his passion goes into action. Jesus said, take away the stone. Get that terseness there, right? This narrative is going on and on and then immediately Jesus walks up to the tomb and he says, move the stone, Right? You can imagine, this isn't like Jesus walking up like, hey, what do you guys think? Option A, I move the stone. Option B, I do a teaching session and a seminar, right? Like, he goes right up, move the stone, roll it away. He acts powerfully here. Now, Martha, who still has this kind of far-off, distant, theoretical belief in the resurrection, she speaks up, in verse, uh, continuing verse 39, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, notice here the dead man. See, like like that general, the dead man, not Lazarus, the dead man. Said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. We don't, with modern embalming, we forget this. You know, this is the tradition of why we put flowers out of casket. I don't know if you knew this, but because after a few days the decay would begin, decomposition, and so there'd be an odor, and so you'd pack, you put spices. And you would put uh, uh, different kinds of oils and whatnot, like essential oils, right? So they're not pagan. You can use them. But you put them around, and then you put flowers. And you do that, and you would add them and make them fresh every day, and everyone would bring flowers as they continued the viewing of the body. So that's where that came from. So what she's saying is if he's been in the tomb, we haven't moving flowers around and whatnot, there's going to be an odor as soon as you open this up. But here what happens is Jesus... Then responds, saying, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God, what Jesus says is what I'm about to do here will reveal to you the ultimate glory of God, the holiness of God's character gone public. And you're going to see it in the way that I bring my love and I focus it like a laser beam and I bring my power to overcome death. Jesus said, or John said in John 1, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is why Jesus says, You're about ready to see not just my glory, but my glory reveals the glory of the Father and the Spirit who is to come. This is why Jesus then pauses at this point to make it very clear to them that this is the entirety of the Godhead at work. And it says, so they took away the stone. And Jesus, as they did this, they lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. He's praying to the Father so they can hear, so they can see. This is the God of the universe who created all things, who's coming in to recreate and makes everything new. And he says, in this moment, he responds to our greatest question about our greatest enemy. Does he love us, and can he do anything about it? And he says, watch. And know that the God of creation is behind this. Verse 43, the culminating moment. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, in his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped up with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go go. Now, we've probably read this so many times that when we read it, we miss the significance of what Jesus does here. Yes, he calls him out of the grave. Significant, right? But notice how he does it. Jesus doesn't go abracadabra, right? He doesn't go rise. Okay? Generally, what does he do? He calls Lazarus by name. And that has everything to do with God bringing his power and his love together. What is Jesus doing here? Remember John ten three. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. We have here the power of God to raise from the dead, but not just some impersonal power that one day will raise you from the dead. But what happens here is the God of the universe, he calls him by his name. The man is dead in the tomb. I know that man. See, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, it's not some theoretical, cold, indifferent reality in the future that you can kind of believe in and hope in. And I hope when I cross the bridge into death, then I actually find this reality of the resurrection. What he says is, no, I have come for you. I know your name. I know every hair on your head. I know every dependence. I know dependency, every addiction. I know every weakness. I know every stain. I know every flaw. I know everything about you, and I came for you. And I call you by name. It's not just power, but it's a Savior who knows us and loves us. And He says, You are mine. And what he does here is he says, come out, start living now, have life now, have life with me, come to the shepherd, hear my voice and follow me so that I then am the shepherd who walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23, I will never leave your side. As Jesus says in the Great Commission, I will always be with you. I am the resurrection and the life. I give you life now and forever. Life now. So wherever you are in the proverbial tomb, wherever you are tranquilizing yourself with the trivial, he says, hear my voice. You are not just a collection of atoms or just insignificant or forgotten, but you are mine. Come out of the tomb and walk in freedom. Now, one of the interesting things here we're going to see at Easter is that Jesus, when he's resurrected, the burial clothes are all nice and neatly folded, which I enjoy as an OCD individual. I'm like, yes, Jesus, great job. But not, he wasn't just OCD. Jesus, what's saying there is that when Jesus walked out of the grave, there's a completeness to it. When Lazarus walks out, just like when we do, there's an unbind them, everyone. We get the privilege with one another of unbinding the things, the grave clothes that we still wear. There are things that we see in one our lives where we want to put on and walk around like a mummy and forget the resurrection reality we have. And he says, you all unbind him. You all at Anthem unbind one another. Don't reinforce the narratives that say you're insignificant and try to drive people, manipulate people, but instead remind them of the life they have in Christ. You have an unbelievable privilege in reminding people of their life that they have the significance of what they have in Christ. But there's also that life in the future that Jesus gives here, the life of the ultimate resurrection. I, I remember going back to the mother whose story I shared. I remember we went to this passage. I remember sitting in her home and us reaping it after the second son had died. And we read it and we wept. I remember we, we read it and it was the Spirit, calling the Spirit to groan with us. And I remember in the midst of that, at one point, she tears rolling down her face and she looked up through the tears and, and I remember she, she looked at me in a choked voice and she said, you know what I, I'm after, like with reading this passage and hearing Jesus calling them, I remember when this hit me, was her saying to me, you know what I think, even though they're so far from me, And they seem so far away. Do you know what I realize right now? Because she had the smile on her face. She said, you know what I think they heard? When they entered that darkness. She said, I think they heard their name. And that's where healing begins. Many of us, for those of us who've lost ones we loved, who are in Christ, far beyond the reach of our voice, far beyond our touch, what we can rest in is knowing that even though they can't hear our voice and we still feel the grumbling, the rumbling underground, what they hear is his voice, and he calls them by name, and he calls them to life, and he calls us to that reality now. Not just then. How does he do it to end here? The rest of the chapter, I won't go into it. It, result, it recounts how Jesus is turned over. At this point now, he will be crucified. He will enter the tomb. Why? Why, well, as John 10 says, also, if the shepherd knows our voice and leads him out and calls him by name, then also it's because the good shepherd can lead them, because the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. On the cross, the sky grows dark. On the cross, the ground trembles. It grows dark in midday. And what happens is that the earth quakes and it rumbles as the train of death approaches Jesus on the cross. But Jesus on the cross, not only when the light entered down into the grave, into the tomb, into the darkness, The tomb could not hold him. The darkness could not hold the light of life. And on the third day, the angels came down like lightning with light. And the ground rumbled as the stone was rolled away. And he stepped out, and he begins calling his sheep by name. See, at Lazarus' grave, Jesus didn't just say death is natural. It's a normal part of the life cycle. He wept, and then he kicked death in the teeth and conquered it. And he says, every time you feel that rumbling, every time you hear that rumbling, hear my voice more clearly. Michael, Emily, Susan, Larry, on and on every day come out. Hear my voice. So Anthem, are you listening? Do you hear his voice? Let the voice of the shepherd rumble in your souls with that mighty power, that loving tone, and drown out the rumbling of death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your the hope of the resurrection. Lord, we thank you that we have here in the midst of where we want to do you love us are you powerful lord you demonstrate i not only am powerful but i love you and i've come for you so that we would have life now and we would have life forevermore lord help us to find our significance in you help us to be anchored in that love that you have for us and lord help us to walk out of the tomb every day lord give us wisdom and diligence in helping take off the grave clothes of one another Spirit, give us discernment and what that means for each of us. But Spirit, fill us with awe. Fill us with thankfulness. Fill us with hope. Lord, so that in the midst, in the face of our greatest enemy, we would see your outrage. We would see your wrath against sin. We would see the completeness of your just work. And Lord, we would tremble as we fall under that gaze but we would see by faith ourselves in Christ and realize that now you look at us and gaze at us as you do in him as your delight. And that we would walk in that reality trembling, knowing that we tremble before you and the rumbling underneath us does not have a final say. And so Lord, would you fill us with that all? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.